How are we doing? Now you're awake. Good morning. Good to see you. Uh, glad you are with us this morning. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and uh, we're really glad. If this is your first time, we uh, just want to say a special welcome to you. Uh, we are in a series in the Psalms uh, this fall, heading uh, through Christmas and into the new year, uh, which we then will start a new series. But right now we're in Psalms, and this morning we're looking at Psalm 95. Uh, Psalm 95, uh, and so if you will, I'm going to ask you uh, as our customs to stand as we read God's Word, so if you're able, please stand. Psalm 95, this is God's Word to us this morning. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God. And a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Isaiah 40 tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Uh, let's pray. God, I ask that you would come now and you would speak to us. Lord, as we have been worshiping and uh, you have been with us as you have extended this invitation to come and to meet with you, to pour out our heart, to confess our sins, to be reminded of your grace, to share our struggles and our prayers with one another, that you are a God who hears and listens, and we come now to a time in which you have promised to speak, that your word does not return void. And thank you that it's not dependent upon me, the messenger, but the message and the one who is the message himself, Jesus, is powerful. The gospel is powerful. So God, would you change us as a result of being with you and hearing you speak this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So I've really enjoyed being in the Psalms the past few months. I've enjoyed it. Last week, if you were here, I preached on Psalm 84, and I made a printout for you to take home, a printout dealing with how you might prepare and gain the most from our Sunday morning experience. If you don't have that, I'd love to give it to you if you weren't here last week. But on there, I put a quote from John Piper. And John Piper said this, Worship is never a step on our way to any other experience. Worship is not a door through which we pass to get anywhere. It is the end point. It is the goal. Worship is the end point. It is the goal for humanity. It is the reason for which we were created. It is the reason for which we are to live. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a great resource if you've never looked at it, I encourage you to look at it, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. But in there, the Shorter Catechism asks in its first question, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is our ultimate purpose as humanity? And that, the answer, the response, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God, to enjoy God. Every one of us was created for worship. Everyone created to enjoy and to delight 
in God. But worship is sometimes hard to understand. It's, it's a word that, if you've been around the church, we throw that word out a lot. Sometimes can be vague. Worship can be vague but in its definition, but worship in its experience is pretty understood. Because all of us, every one of us, Christian or non-Christian, we've worshipped. James K. Smith, in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, he uses two kind of experiences to describe worship. Uh, and I'm going to use these two experiences, which all of you can relate to. Uh, and so he says, imagine yourself from a different planet. Uh, you, you're, not, you're not from here. These are unique experiences for you. And the first is the mall, and the second is a sporting event. So let me take you into these two experiences, the mall and a sporting event. So imagine you drive up to the mall, right? And you see this big cathedral of glass, right? And you enter in, and there's, there's a big crowd, and they're moving, and they're talking, and they're going. And as you open the door to the mall, you hear this call to come, right? To come in. As you walk by the stores, you hear, come in, see what we have to offer. As you go by a kiosk, you see, uh, you hear this call, come check out the latest gadget. As you walk by maybe the Gap, you hear this call to come in. We're offering 30% off. Check out what we have. And so maybe you venture into the gap and you start looking around and, uh, and you're, you're thinking, maybe I need a new pair of jeans. And you're thinking about either maybe you just like the pair of jeans you see or your old jeans are worn out and you end up coming up with reason, with a reason to, to take those jeans to this you know, checkout counter, give them your money, purchase this pair of jeans and you walk out and you feel pretty happy. You're feeling pretty good about a new pair of jeans. And, uh, and there's this response to what just happened. And as you leave this big cathedral of glass, you find yourself looking forward to going back, right? And experiencing it yet again. That's worship. That is the rhythm of worship at the mall. Take a sporting event. Uh, let me use Auburn football since that's what sometimes I can worship uh, uh, i got to confess and repent of my worship of Auburn football, and it disappointed me last night, if any of you saw the game. It was very disappointing. Um, broke my heart. But imagine you're from a different planet. You go to Auburn, Alabama, small college town, and you, see, you drive in, and you see hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people surrounding this football stadium. You see people preparing to enter, and they're eating meals together. They're drinking. They're gathering in groups. They're getting ready to go into this big stadium. And you get inside this stadium of worship, and you hear people starting to chant and to yell and to, to shout for Auburn. You see this eagle start flying around the field, and everybody starts chanting War Eagle. And then you hear this the, the head cheerleader comes on the mic, and he, he extends this invitation. Everybody! Stand up. Come on, everybody, stand up and cheer for your Auburn Tigers. And then you hear people around you start talking about national championship or, or Nick Marshall, the quarterback or the running back, or about how their grandparents and their parents grew up on Auburn football, and you hear reasons for why there's this passion and this love for football at Auburn. And then you see Auburn score a touchdown, and you see everybody start high-fiving and hugging and chanting, and there's a response to what happened and then everybody leaves and they look forward to going back the next week to experience worship yet again all of us know worship we've experienced it because we were created to worship we were created to take delight in something ultimately god 
The sad thing is, though, we might experience worship at the mall or at a sporting event. Sometimes it's hard to describe true worship of God. And so I want us to look at Psalm 95 and its understanding of what God wants to show us about worship. And it gives us three things. It gives us the invitation, gives us the reason, and it gives us the response. The invitation, the reason, and the response of worship. So let's look at Psalm 95 together at first, worship's invitation. Look at verse 1. Come, let us sing. Come, let us make a joyful noise. Come, let us come into His presence. Verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Come. Timothy talked about this in the call to worship. Come is God's invitation to us. Come is the gospel offered to us. Come is God's grace extended to us yet again. Come, let us worship. If you've read Genesis chapter 3, the the first book of the Bible, can you remember what happened between God and Adam and Eve? But just before they sinned, they were walking with God in the cool of the day, enjoying deep intimacy, deep relationship with God, and then they sinned. In Genesis chapter 3, they rebelled. They willingly disobeyed God, and they reaped consequences. And one of the consequences was that their relationship with God was broken. It was broken. And as a result, God told Adam and Eve to come, didn't he? Nope. Can you remember Genesis 3? Make sure you're awake. Did, Did God say come? God told Adam and Eve to go, didn't he? To go, get out of the garden. Because of your sin, get away, is what God told Adam and Eve. The consequence of their sin was broken relationship, no longer naked and unashamed before God. God told them to go, to get away. But here, Psalm 95, we have God offering the opposite. Here he says, come. Genesis chapter 3 said, go. Here's an invitation to come. And this is the first thing that we have to understand about worship. It is based upon grace. Our worship is based on grace. The invitation to come is based on what Christ has done for us. Because of Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man who lived a perfect life of obedience, and he died a death that we deserved. We can place our faith, we can place our trust in what Christ has done for us and the merit of Jesus, his perfect life, his death on our behalf, his resurrection and his promised return. The merit that he's acquired is given to us if we just put our trust and we put our faith in him. So this invitation to come, to come is based on the life, death, blood and the resurrection of Christ. So when we come on Sunday mornings, As Timothy reminded us this morning, we hear this call to worship. It is a call based on the invitation of grace. Not based on how well you've lived this past week. Not based on how well you feel this morning or the things you have done this morning. We are called and we're invited to come and to worship God because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. We can come because God the Father told the Son to go. Didn't he? To go to the cross. Pilate and the Roman soldiers told Jesus to go. To get away. To go to the cross. And because he did go. Hallelujah. Because he did go, we place our faith and we now have this invitation to come. And we come, verse 2, into his presence. Right? We come into his presence, which literally means to come before the face of God. That's what scripture means. To come into his presence is to come to the face of God. And the face of God in the Bible is the place where you have relationship with God. 
It is the place of deep intimacy. It is the place where you know God and you're known by God. John Owen wrote this, an old theologian, said access into the presence of God is this. When you open to him and he opens to you and you rest in him as the fulfillment of your deepest desires. When you open to him and he opens to you and you rest in him for the fulfillment of your deepest desires. That's what worship is. When Rachel and I started dating, uh, which we did all of our dating long distance, we talked on the phone. She was in Birmingham, I was here in Durham. And, uh, and when you talk on the phone long distance, it, it kind of pushes you to, to be a little bit more intentional in your communication uh, than if you can kind of just live day in and day out with one another. And so we found ourselves talking on the phone pretty regularly as we're getting to know one another. And, and one night, uh, we started talking. And in this conversation, Rachel will tell you that this conversation was the turning point for her that made her realize that's when she wanted to marry me. Uh, I knew way before, but I was trying to convince her, convince her, convince her. And finally, this conversation, uh, I got her to be convinced. Uh, I didn't know I was doing that, but that's what happened. Uh, and what happened in this conversation is that we finally opened up to one another. We opened up about our deepest fears, our struggles, our worries, our anxieties, and we began to share with one another uh, those things that are going on in our hearts and our lives. And when we started to open up in that way, we went from a general knowledge of one another to a much more intimate knowledge of one another. And in sharing, we were entrusting the other person with ourselves. We were knowing one another and letting ourselves be known. And as a result of that, we were encouraged, we felt loved, we felt challenged by one another. And that's what John Owen is saying worship is. It's not coming to God and going through the motions and, and saying our prayers, right? You know the difference between saying your prayers and actually praying. We've all done that, right? Actually praying, coming into the presence of God, coming before the face of God and opening yourself up in your fears and your struggles and with your joys and not just knowing God, but allowing God to deal with you personally, to deal with you in a personal way. It's God offering an invitation of grace and you entering into his presence and then God encouraging and loving and challenging you. You know, I would get off those phone calls with Rachel after we went to a much more intimate place with one another and I would feel different. I'd feel changed because I was opening myself up and she was opening herself up to me. That's what happens when we accept the invitation of grace to come into the presence of God and worship. We leave different. We leave changed. We leave awakened and thrilled about who God is. See, verses 1 to 2 and verse 6 is this invitation to come into worship. Verses 3 to 5 and verses 6 to 7 give us the reason we are to worship. So let's look at the reason to worship. Verse 3 says, For the Lord is a great God and a great King. Verse 7, For He is our God, our Maker. Verse 6, Our Shepherd. This word for literally means truly. Truly, the Lord is a great God, great King. Truly, the Lord is our maker and our shepherd. So we're offered an invitation to come and to worship, and we have a reason. We have truth that informs and shapes our worship. Verse 3 to 5, He's the great God, and He's the great King. He's the great God who holds the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains, the sea that He has formed, and as good as we might think this world is, and as much as we might enjoy nature, God holds it all in his hands. He's the creator, and he deserves praise. And he's the great king above all gods. There's no other god like our God. He rules supremely 
over everything. Everything is in submission to him. In verses 6 to 7, he's our maker and our shepherd. He rules over all things, and yet he cares for us intimately and deeply. The Children's Catechism, which is, uh, helps children to understand the Westminster Shorter Catechism, its fifth question in the Children's Catechism is this, why ought you to glorify God? Why ought you to glorify Why ought you to worship God? Why ought you to enjoy God? The answer, because he has made us and he takes care of us. Children can say that, because he has made us and he takes care of us. That's Psalm 95, taken straight from Psalm 95. Why should we glorify and worship and enjoy God? Because he is our maker and our shepherd. But here's my point that I really want to drive home. There is a truth that inflames Christian worship. There is a truth that sets worship on fire. Without truth, it's not true worship. There must be reason. Now, I've visited Asheville, North Carolina many times. And uh, it's a cool city. Downtown Asheville is a fun place to go. But in Asheville, North Carolina, when the weather is good, uh, there's a Friday afternoon, and they might do it other times during the week, but there's a Friday afternoon drum jam, drum circle, right? Uh, whoever has a drum in the whole city of Asheville brings their drum out, and they gather around, and they just start wailing on their drums. And it's, it's fun. I mean, people are on the outskirts, they're dancing, they're enjoying it, and they're having a great time. And, uh, and, and I, I will say that Christians, we probably should do that way more than we do. Uh, we should show the world how to have more fun than anyone. Uh, and so we should dance and we should listen to music. So don't hear me saying that. We should have a good time. But there is a big difference. Hear me in saying this. There is a big difference between true worship and having an emotional, fun time. True worship is always guided and inflamed by truth. Having an emotional experience, getting your blood flowing, having a meditative experience without the truth of who God is, is not worship. I was joking a few weeks ago with someone that if you can leave church, any church, hopefully not Christ Central, but if you can leave a church and you think what just happened could happen in a mosque, a Jewish temple, or a social justice gathering, then that's not true worship. If what just happened could happen in a mosque, a Jewish temple, or a social justice gathering, it's not true worship. Because true worship is always set on fire by the scriptural truth of who our God is. And Psalm 95 tells us that the Christian God offers an invitation of grace based on the merit of his only son, Jesus. And our God is a great God, the King above all gods, the maker and our shepherd. So here's a side, a side note. This is why... The songs I like for us to sing at Christ Central, I like for them to be descriptive of who God is. I like for us to ascribe the glory due to God, not, song, not singing songs about us or about what we do, but about who He is. Because true worship is truth catching fire in the heart and the mind of God's people. It's not emotional, vague, drifting off into ecstasy. It is discovering the truth of who our God is. And we see his worth. We see his value. And then we give him what he is worth, which is our worship. You give him your song. You give him your whole heart. You give him all of your life. I heard Tim Keller uh, use an analogy. He said, imagine a woman whose mother had given her an antique piece of jewelry, old piece of jewelry. She had no idea what this was worth that her mother gave her. She used it. She wore it. One day, a, a friend who used to work for a jeweler, jeweler looked at her and said, oh, that's awfully unusual. That piece of jewelry is awfully unusual. 
you might want to take that and, and get it appraised. And she ended up going to the jewelry store, getting it appraised. And the appraiser looked at it, was blown, awa- blown away. So this is so unique. Do you realize what this is? This is the, the lost long what, whatsoever, right? The, this long lost piece of jewelry. Do you realize what this is worth? This is worth millions of dollars. Millions of dollars. She took it into her hands. And the first thing that happened to her was emotional. It was emotional. She had seen it many times, but she had never looked at it like this. She now saw the value, and it caught fire in her heart, and she was moved emotionally. Worship should be emotional, not only emotion, though. It should be emotional, and she was moved that way. The second thing that happened is she was volitionally changed. Volition, meaning her will was changed. Now, she knew how expensive this piece of jewelry was. Before, she used to throw it on her dresser. She used to lose it temporarily. Now she knew at all times where this piece of jewelry was. She guarded it. She kept it. She wore it. Her actions were changed. And then the third thing that happened was her entire perspective toward, it changed, toward life changed, toward the world changed. She all of a sudden began to think about everything differently because of this piece of jewelry. She's like, I'll be able to do this. I'll be able to buy this. Her entire life was different because of the value of this piece of jewelry. Her entire perspective changed. That is exactly what should happen when we worship. The difference between knowing about God and knowing God intimately is when the truth of God catches fire in our hearts and our minds and we know how valuable God is and it inflames our hearts and we say, I've never looked at God like that before. And that leads to change in all of our lives. And it leads to a a way of viewing the whole world differently. Here's a point. You will know if you've worshipped if you've been changed. Because true worship is always inflamed by the truth of the Bible. If we leave here on a Sunday morning and we think, man, that was great. That was great. And, And maybe even tell others, man, Christ said, that was great. But you cannot give a reason founded upon the truth of who our God is if the truth of the gospel has not gripped our hearts and our minds. We have to ask the question, have we really worshipped? Because the truth of God will change us if we've worshipped. The invitation to come is always followed by a for, for a reason, with the truth of Scripture. Let's look lastly at worship's response. See, when we accept this invitation... Uh, to worship, and it's inflamed with truth, with reason. There's a response. Verse 6 says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. In the Hebrew, the original language, there are three consecutive verbs here. It literally means come, bow down, bow down, bow down. (laughs) Bow down, bow down, bow down. It's not a polite bending of the knee. It's not a solemn prostrating of the, you know, or bowing of the head. The response is a complete prostrating of yourself before the presence of God. That's the response. If you've seen the movie, an uh, older movie, The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise, the very end of the movie, he comes in, he presents his sword before the emperor, and he falls on his face, face in the dirt, hands out before the emperor in submission, complete surrender. That's the picture. The response of worshiping who our God is, is complete surrender, face in the dirt, 
and submission before our God our whole life. I just finished reading Andre Agassi's book, his autobiography, and Agassi spent his entire life playing tennis. He spent his entire life, his father drove him to be the best tennis player from a very young age. Father sent him away to Florida to the tennis academy, and, and all of Andre's life revolved around tennis. And you could say that he surrendered everything to be the best at tennis. Surrendered it all. But what, what you read from page one in his book is that Andre hated his father. <laughs> Andre hated his father for being the tyrant who drove him and called him to be the best and to give his whole life to tennis. And, and Andre would actually say throughout the book that though he devoted and he surrendered his whole life to tennis, he actually hated tennis. Both his father and tennis, he viewed his entire life as the constant tyrant, the constant taskmaster, demanding and driving and wanting more and never fulfilling him. Andre gave his life to tennis, but he hated it. He hated it. And I'm afraid some of you who grew up in the Christian church, maybe you've been around the church, some of you have a similar response to Christ and to the church as Andre with tennis. Because if you grew up with a view of God and the church as a taskmaster, demanding and taking from you, it is no wonder why you might hate the church and even might hate God. But please hear me say that Psalm 95 is telling us God is not a tyrant. Our God is not a taskmaster. God is a God of grace and love and mercy, and His grace and His love were very expensive. It cost Him greatly to offer us forgiveness, to extend the invitation yet again this morning. It cost Him His own Son. The Son of God, Jesus, would be prostrate, beaten, face in the dirt, surrendered to the will of His Father. The God of the Bible loves you. He does for you what you cannot do. He rejoices over you. He sings over you. And all he asks is for us to receive the gift of his son, which was costly, which was expensive. And knowing this God, it brings joy. It brings joy. It brings a joyful noise unto the Lord. Not a dreaded surrender, but a joyful letting go and trusting God with all of our life. The response of worship is joyful surrender. But there's a warning. I don't know if you picked up on it. There's this, this kind of psalm is joyful from verses 1 through 6, right? And all of a sudden you get to verses 7 to 11 and you're like, whoa, it's kind of ending on a bad note. What's happening? It's this warning. This warning happens in verses 7 to 11. And the warning is today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As at Meribah and Massa today. Meribah refers to the children of Israel testing the Lord in Exodus chapter 17. Massa refers to Moses' own unfaithfulness in Numbers chapter 20. The testing of the Lord, the unfaithfulness towards the Lord. You ever tested the Lord? You've been unfaithful? Yes, <laughs> we've all done that. But the unfaithfulness and the testing of the Lord led the first generation of Israel to not enter into the promised land. God said, you will not enter into my rest. Moses did not enter into the promised land. But the great offer for us today, today, and it requires a response today, is that though we might be unfaithful and though we might test our God at times, Jesus Christ, the great King, 
And the great leader of his people was faithful. And he entered into the promised land. And he has secured the promised land. And he has granted us rest through his life and his death and his resurrection. Today, today we believe. Today we trust. Today we surrender our whole life to Christ. And we can worship so many different things. We can go to the mall We might not even say we worship, but we're worshiping. We can go to a sporting event. We might not say we're worshiping, but we're worshiping. And we can chase after so many things in this world that give us value and purpose. And we can even worship ourselves, doing life the way we want to do it. And we can expect God to bend to us. And we will never, ever have rest. We'll never have rest. The only way to have rest, deep rest, is to surrender to a gracious and loving God, a God who is overall, king overall, who made us and he cares for us. And he offers an invitation based on the merit and the work of Jesus, our worship inflamed by truth, and we respond in a joyful surrender. And God asks us today, perhaps for you it's the first time, perhaps for you it's yet again, to surrender today. Would you do that? Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us by your grace, God, by your grace to hear the call to come, to see the reasons that you are worthy for our worship, for all of our life, and that, God, we would respond. We would be changed as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.